Hey, Clean Techers, for the Scaling Clean podcast, we've interviewed over 20 clean economy CEOs, investors, and advisors. I have found all these interviews insightful and worth sharing with you, but Tom Stars is the second guest whose insights were so rich, we had to break the conversation into two parts. Tom is the longest serving government affairs leader in clean economy that I know of, and he's seen three decades of trends, tactics, organizations, and issues that have really deepened his perspective to a level I haven't seen anywhere else. Tom's current employer, EDP, is only the latest company he's guided through the shoals of policy and politics. This is the second in our two-part interview with Tom Stars, and I hope you find his insights as useful as I did as we pass the one-year mark in the Inflation Reduction Act and experience the predictable pushback by incumbent sectors against our market-disrupting growth. Um, Tom, I got to ask this question because it's one of my favorites to ask. I didn't even think to put it in the questions list, so I'm going to spring it on you. In the wake of the Trump years and in the wake of the IRA's passage, right now in clean economy, writ large, is market execution or policy support more important? Which of the two? I, I think, Mike, you may or may not like my answer, but they're so commingled that you that you can't really separate them out that way. I think that we're in a situation now where we've clearly knocked out one of the main barriers, which is basic economics. And by the way, I'm not suggesting for your very sophisticated audience, I, I fully recognize we're still subsidizing um, the renewable energy technologies. Um, of course, we're also still subsidizing the fossil fuel technologies and the Thank nuclear you. technologies. Thank you, Tom. I love you. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. So to me, that's just a matter of, of parity. I mean, I am now in the camp where I would say, you know, if we truly could and would remove all of those energy subsidies across the board and create a level playing field, economically speaking, then uh, then I'm absolutely convinced renewables would still be fully cost competitive. Um, but my my broad point is that economics are really no longer a barrier to renewable energy deployment. Um, what is still a barrier is the challenge of really scaling up these technologies to become an ever increasing proportion of the total electricity mix. So the good news is, you know, we've we've gotten to, you know, five percent. 10% penetration of both solar and wind. And we've done that in the context of a grid that, uh, that where the utilities can essentially manage around the variability of solar and wind. How do they do that? Well, the utilities have spent 100 years dealing with the variability on the demand side, right? We all know energy, you know, electricity demand is very low at night. It ramps up in the morning as people wake up and turn on their coffee makers and their hair dryers and so on. It stays pretty steady during the course of the day, unless it's a hot summer day and then and then air conditioning further ramps demand in the, in the afternoon and through the early evening. And then it slowly drops down at night. So 
everyone in this field knows that. So my, my point in saying that is that the utilities have this history of ramping generation up or down as needed to respond to that demand. Dealing with the variability of solar and wind is the same thing in reverse. You're just managing around the variability on the generation side rather than the variability on the demand on the demand side. Um, so that's not magic. Uh, what is a challenge though, and will continue to be a challenge, is dealing with the variability of solar and wind when the penetration of those, in particular, those two technologies goes from being say 20% to being 60 or 80 or 90%, right? Mm. And for that, we do need a new grid paradigm. <clears throat> and for that, to get back to your question, you know, I think policy is gonna continue to play a really, really important role because uh, policy is, again, as it, as it so often has in this field, policy is lagging the potential of the technologies and the readiness of, of this mix of technologies. And by mix, I mean not just solar and wind as generation sources, but things like battery storage, um, other storage sources, uh, you know, even green hydrogen and so on, or even new transmission technologies, you know, and the grid enhancing technologies that could bolster transmission capacity materially. All of those things are out there. They're basically available today. I'm not saying they're all fully cost competitive today, although many of them are, but we have the technology answers, the technology solutions that we need to fully uh, transform the energy system and to drive towards uh, a clean energy future. What we lack is essentially the will to do that, especially on the part of my good friends at the utilities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, utilities do many amazing things. They, uh, they keep the lights on with a very high degree of reliability and they've been doing that for a century as as technologies and circumstances have evolved. But one thing they have never been is, uh, is particularly good at embracing innovation and being early adopters of innovation. And that, by the way, to give you a bit of a side note, is why I've always been a fan, uh, really since PURPA, which I mentioned earlier, of the role of the uh, private non-utility uh, sector in uh, in driving the development and in particular the deployment of new grid technologies because that's how that's how we're really going to solve uh, these you know the climate challenge and these other challenges that leads me to my next question I'm going to read you a list of nine threats to the clean energy transition that we've come up with and our readers have helped us with in no particular order, supply chain instability, workforce development, lack of infrastructure such as EV charging stations, critical minerals, permitting, storage, transmission, legacy grid weakness, and a lack of sufficient government infrastructure to, per, to process applications, permits, new tax guidance. Is there any that are missing that are like at that level? And which of those barriers do you see as the number one that threatens the clean energy transition the most? Well, first of all, it's a great list. Um, I don't see anything, I mean, my, my top 
selections are already on your list. Um, to answer your question, I would say number one on the list, especially sort of midterm to long-term is transmission. Hmm. Um, I am a firm believer that distributed generation and various distributed resources can play a, a really material role in, uh, in driving the clean energy transition. And I think there are a variety of reasons having to do with, uh, with the creation of the grid of the future, meaning a highly reliable, resilient, and, and more efficient grid. Um, and distributed resources are going to play a key role in that. But uh, I am not a believer, as some are, that either distributed resources or utility scale resources um, are the answer to driving the clean energy transition. It's going to be a mix of both. And I don't see anything changing the fact that the by far the lowest cost way to deliver clean energy to consumers is through utility scale applications. So utility scale wind farms, utility scale solar parks. And to do that economically, we need uh, a, really a massive investment in transmission. And I know for some of your listeners, that's not great news because you know no one wants to see newly built transmission towers, you know, more or less, either literally or figuratively in their backyard. Um, there are, you know, other technology options out there that can help address that. You know, I think ultimately we really should be focusing R&D efforts, for example, on figuring out how to more cost-effectively underground transmission at the higher voltages that are necessary. Um, there's a lot we could do in existing transmission corridors to increase the capacity of the existing system without requiring new rights of way or, or entirely new transmission build out. But even with those um, opportunities, there still is no substitute for new transmission. And I think even our allies among the environmental NGOs, for example, have come to recognize that and we're I personally, and my company and our industry is, we're working quite closely with the environmental NGOs and with other stakeholders to try to figure out how best to address that challenge. But uh, to come back to your question, I just think, uh, you know, when you look at the scale of deployments that's necessary to get from, again, in very rough numbers, 20% to 80 or 90 or even 100%, you know, green uh, energy, carbon-free energy, uh, the level of investment that we need in transmission is massive. And the a major challenge we have today is that because of the challenges associated with siting and permitting and financing transmission, uh, you know, the, the, the pretty typical timeframe required for, uh, for new transmission from uh, from initial, uh, you know, conceptual siting, for example, through uh, commercial operation where that line's actually delivering energy is typically about 10 years. And in some cases, it's actually been materially longer than that. And it's very rarely been shorter than six to eight years. So we need to get mm -hmm. a jump on this. And as much as the Inflation Reduction Act, and, you know, 
the most consequential climate and energy bill that we've ever passed in this country, as much as it did to stimulate and in fact really supercharge the generation side of the clean energy sector, it really didn't do much of anything for uh, to stimulate investments in transmission. And, uh, and that is a pretty big gaping hole. And Mike, you know me well enough to know, you know, I took, I took about a day to celebrate the, uh, the uh, passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. And then I immediately turned my attention to figuring out, you know, what we had not gotten done and figure out ways to, uh, to solve uh, the remaining challenges that, um, that the Inflation Reduction Act uh, did not address. And transmission is foremost among those. And people will know by how well you're setting me up for the next question that you're not just a gov reg guy, you're a comms guy as well, because you're doing a beautiful job setting one question up for the uh, for the other here. Okay. Great. Um, Great. On a scale of one to five, just stepping back for a second, viewing the entire clean economy sector. On a scale of one to five, five being terrific, one being really bad, how would you rate our sector at large in meeting the threat set that faces us at this period of time, one year after the IRA's passage? Well, you're not gonna like my answer because I don't like my answer, but the answer is like a two. We have a lot of work to do. No, I agree. We have a lot of work I to do. I actually agree. And I'm happy to elaborate on that. Please do. I was gonna say, you know, I. Th I I don't think anybody looking at your resume can see you as a clean tech hater. So I think this is coming from a loving family member rather than Robert Bryce. You know, I think that's, so I think we ought to pay a lot of attention to why you give that to and unpack that to for sure. So let me touch on two things in answering your question. The first is that we did many things brilliantly in drafting and ultimately enacting the Inflation Reduction Act. I'd say the biggest strength of the act is that it had something for almost all of the technologies that are going to play or have the potential to play an important role in driving the clean energy transition. And that includes the most obvious examples like incentives for solar and wind, some other, you know, maybe less obvious, but still apparent examples like creating a standalone tax credit for battery storage investments. And then some maybe less expected, but still very well received measures like the production incentives for green hydrogen and the manufacturing incentives. I'd also say that the act was brilliant in combining a set of economic goals, not just driving essentially, you know, the, the most consequential piece of climate legislation that we've ever, we've ever seen, but doing so, <clears throat> paying attention to other important factors such as domestic manufacturing of these technologies and economic development opportunities, particularly in disadvantaged communities, lower income communities, for example, uh, and creating um, strict labor standards for, uh, in order to be eligible for some of these incentives that would ensure and really drive the development 
of a well-trained, capable workforce to handle the challenge that, that we're going to be facing of really a massive build-out of this new energy infrastructure. So those are all the good things. And the act itself, you know, there's really little that I would say could have been improved on, except as I already touched on, I think it could have done more for transmission. And we can come back to that if you're interested. But the challenge since the almost exactly one year, by the way, since the Inflation Reduction Act was passed, has been that it's it's felt to me like the Biden administration in particular has been dealing with sort of different constituencies that have different goals that are not necessarily uh, unified around what I consider the principal goal of accelerating the deployment of clean energy. And that mix of constituencies has, in some cases, really sort of messed with the early opportunities for deployment of these technologies. So I feel like I'm speaking a little too generally, so let me give you a, a couple of examples. One is, is pretty obvious, but I'm a little more forgiving in this case, which is essentially the process for issuing the guidance, so-called the Treasury guidance, that essentially represents the rules for the implementation of the, uh, of the major provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. And this is, for those that have any kind of legal background, this is, you know, you pass a law, that's the statute, typically just a framework, then you need to write the implementing regulations that tell you, that fill in the blanks, that, that provide the details that, you know, investors and developers and others need in order to, uh, to shape their investment. Some have been critical of the administration for the pace at which guidance has been issued. I'm actually not in that camp. I think they've done a reasonably good job with the guidance. I mean, it's been a year and we still don't have all of it, but this stuff takes time and is really complicated. But I think there have been some other sort of ancillary issues that have really put a damper on early opportunities for deployment. Um, one is um, at FERC, at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, we've had two uh, proposed rules that have been pending for uh, well over a year now. Um, the good news is one of them just made its way through FERC and was, it was uh, passed as a final rule just in the last couple of weeks. But the other major one on cost allocation is still pending and, uh, and doesn't have a really clear path forward. I think ultimately it'll get done, but, but we've seen holdups there partly associated with uh, the fact that, uh, that Rich Glick, who was the last FERC chair, uh, was essentially denied the opportunity to stay in that role there's a lot of, of backstory there, which we probably shouldn't get into, but uh, but Rich was <coughs> Joe in Manchin. my indeed, um, and and Rich, in my view, uh, was really almost ideal for the role that he played in his tenure of really trying to drive the the transition at FERC to really being an agency that could enable the necessary changes to the management of the wholesale markets to accommodate this variety of new technologies and the mix of resources that, that, uh, that are going to be, uh, you know, represent the grid of the future. So we miss Rich and we need a very, a very solid and capable FERC that can handle uh, these challenges and move forward on a more, frankly, more aggressive pace with, uh, 
with addressing the challenges on transmission and on other wholesale market design elements. So that's one. Another one is the solar supply chain. And this is a big one. Uh, in my view, it feels like we've stumbled all over ourselves on the solar supply chain issue, and that in the interests of achieving a, a very important goal, which I, of course, fully support, uh, and that is the goal of, of reducing our dependence on, uh, on imported solar panels and specifically reducing our dependence on not just, you know, complete panels, but materials uh, that are that are central to the solar supply chain in which China plays an overwhelmingly dominant role, right? I mean, China produces about 80% of the world's polysilicon. It produces about 95% of the world's wafers for solar manufacturing. And, you know, and that's, that's a problem. Uh, and it's a problem we need to resolve. But the administration, the Biden administration, I think, has, uh, has misstepped in not recognizing that that transition is not a transition that can be driven in a year or even two years, or even in three or four years. It's a transition that takes time. And some of the measures that it's pursued or allowed to be pursued, meaning, you know, maybe these, uh, there are a couple of trade cases, for example, that were initiated by other companies, but that the administration embraced have caused really terrible disruptions in the solar supply chain and have put us in a situation where deployment just really since just before the IRA was passed and then and in the year since the IRA was passed have, uh, have really materially slowed the importation of solar panels to the point where it's really been detrimental. And, you know, it looks like that's more of a near-term concern um, we will work our way through those issues, but anyone like you, Mike, who understands the, the, the math associated with exponential growth knows that if you need to get from here to there over the course of a decade, and you need an average of 30% growth to do that, and I'm 30% is just my proxy figure, but if you lose a year or two, and in fact, you know, in this year or two, we actually have seen pretty much unprecedented reduction in uh, uh, in solar deployment in the U.S., right? I mean, the growth rate was phenomenal for literally decades on end, and it's really flattened in the last couple of years. And, uh, and, and that is not the path to uh, capturing the opportunities associated with the Inflation Reduction Act, and that's not the path that we need to be on um, in order to take advantage of what the IRA has to offer. So I'm, I'm, I'm really concerned that we've lost some momentum and that, you know, if you, if you go from needing 30% growth year on year to having a couple of years where that growth is, is near zero or maybe slightly negative or slightly positive, then the growth rate that you need in the ensuing years has to be that much higher in order to get to your ultimate target number. And, uh, and that, I think, has really been a missed opportunity for us, this country. So you quit your job tomorrow, and you are hired by the entire clean economy industry. Let's say it forms a massive Uber meta association, and it says, Tom, you're giving us a two rating. What, what do you want us to do differently 
from a multi-company platform as an industry, what should we do differently to go from a two to a four, say, and meeting the barriers to the clean energy transition? Yeah, great, great question, Mike. I'm going to give you three um, elements to that answer. And we've touched on two of the three already. The first and most important would be to aggressively pursue a new transmission policy that dealt with streamlining the siting and permitting of new high voltage transmission lines across the country, hopefully combined with new transmission technologies, including grid enhancing technologies that can be deployed in existing rights of way, right? Existing transmission corridors, but also including new, new transmission. So that would be one. A second would be that we've already touched on is dealing with the solar supply chain issues and recognizing that we still need to be dependent, will be dependent, whether we like it or not. Uh, for example, on some polysilicon from China. Should that polysilicon uh, be allowed to have any components from the Xinjiang region in China, where the indigenous Uyghur Muslim population has been uh, has been subject to terrible labor practices by the Chinese government? No, we should not be importing anything that touches and includes any element in the supply chain from Xinjiang. But there, we know that there's a majority of the polysilicon produced in China is not associated with anything in Xinjiang, and yet we've effectively precluded the importation of, of solar panels uh, that, that, uh, that use China Poly uh, to the point where you know, the detentions that have been made um, from mostly from the big four Chinese manufacturers to be clear, though, Chinese manufacturers who are operating primarily outside of China, mostly in Southeast Asia, um, but of those products, those solar panels that have been detained coming from those areas, none of it has been cleared. Not one shipment, to my knowledge, has been cleared that was made with Chinese, Chinese polysilicon. And that is just uh, an unworkable approach to this. And we need to dedicate our energy to finding ways to satisfy ourselves that those materials, that Chinese polysilicon is free of Xinjiang uh, ties. But beyond that, we need to be comfortable uh, recognizing, at least in the short term, that, uh, that some materials from China are going to continue to be a, a, a key component of the solar supply chain going forward. And uh, so that's the second. The third that we haven't touched on is the increasing challenges associated with the siting and permitting of large-scale renewable energy projects. And unfortunately, it's a really tough one to take on because uh, sadly, it reflects more than anything else, the increased polarization of politics in this country. It's ironic that we passed this massive climate bill and that the benefits of the massive investments that that climate bill is enabling uh, are going to benefit disproportionately rural communities in this country, which tend to be more conservative, politically speaking, and whose, uh, whose residents and citizens are uh, increasingly opposed to 
uh, the siting of these, in particular, wind and solar projects um, for reasons that, in my opinion, reflect mostly massive disinformation campaigns that are politically driven. Amen. Amen. Okay. So that's a big hurdle to cross. And I think, frankly, the way to do it is not through the sort of oppressive thumb of the federal government uh, coming in. I think we in the industry need to figure out how to cultivate better, stronger relationships with those rural, uh, rural community residents. Uh, we're doing that within my own company, within EDP Renewables, with uh, with a strong and expanding commitment to uh, community relations in the communities in which we're developing projects. Um, but it's a big challenge across the industry, and we need to figure out how to, how to better engage with people in those communities to make a compelling case about the, the benefits of the economic investment that we're bringing, the benefits of the jobs that we're bringing, the benefits of the, of the ancillary benefits from from you know, the tax revenues that can help rejuvenate schools, help rejuvenate, you know, local infrastructure and so on uh, in those communities. Okay, great. In this advisor to the Meta Association, the follow-up question they ask you is, on a per company basis, what's the most important thing you think most companies should do in the realm of government affairs that they that the average clean economy company t tends to not be doing right now? Wow, that's a great question. Give me a minute on that one. Sure. What's the thing we should be doing as an industry or individual companies should be doing within the industry that they're not doing now? I think the we tend to be less engaged. I'll give you two quick answers. One is we tend to be less engaged on the wholesale market side you know, the clean energy sector has some presence at FERC, but it's really not adequate in FERC proceedings. The utilities tend to overwhelmingly dominate that area. And even more specifically in the regional transmission owners and the organized markets where the utilities are hugely dominant. I mean, at FERC, at least there's a process and it's relatively manageable process for the clean energy se sector to have some presence and some representation there, but the RTOs uh, are just dominated by the utilities and that's not really the right solution for us. So that's, that's one answer. And I think the second answer is that we really do, again, time, going back to what I just said a minute ago, I think we really do need to figure out how to do a better job of conveying to the American public that we're offering opportunities to rejuvenate a substantial part of the American economy using technologies and availing ourselves of resources that are unequivocally better than the path that we've been on for the last 50 years. You know, that coal is toxic, period. You know, coal is not only, you know, a, a, the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions, but it's also the biggest source of mercury in the environment, the biggest source of lead in the environment. I mean, it's it's just toxic. So, you know, to have, uh, you know, rural residents say, and I've heard of them saying this, I didn't hear it directly, but I heard it from a very reliable source, to have someone stand up in a public hearing and say, I'd rather see a new coal-fired power plant 
located essentially in my backyard, then uh, your wind farm or solar park is just uh, is just jaw dropping to me. And and yet we see that kind of, uh, I mean that's an extreme statement, but we see sort of forms of that kind of thinking um, out there. And you know, to use the cliche, you know, we really need to win the hearts and minds of rural Americans with respect to the benefits that are going to come to their communities from being a part of this transition to uh, to a, a, a new clean energy sector. Got two questions left. One thing we've noticed is that mature sectors hire a lot of talent out of political campaigns. We just had a guy we posted on yesterday, Jonathan Drobis, he, his job is to run grass tops, AstroTurf campaigns for Fortune 500 companies. And the people who do this are like him. They all have years and years of experience, professional experience, putting people in office, keeping them there and getting rid of them. And it's something that we've noticed about clean economy companies that there actually is a, is a, it's a scarcity of people who have been professional political campaigners. Do you think we need to have our ranks of government affairs people expanded to include that political talent? Or do you think it's not really necessary because we're more regulatory focused? I think unequivocally, we need more of that kind of talent in our sector. And um, that raises the question why we don't already have it. And there's sort of good news and bad news in that respect, Mike. The good news is that I see every day, I see people who are making a conscious choice to leave, for example, the oil and gas sector to join the clean energy sector. And they, and they sometimes, not always, but sometimes do it at the, at, uh, at the expense of, you know, the, the kind of levels of compensation that they had in their former jobs. Um, although I think we're doing a, a better job than we have in competing in those terms, but they do it because they feel better about the work that they're doing. Yeah. So that's that's the good news. I think the bad news is that it's it's a it's a weird twist of, on the power of incumbency, Mike. We are we in the clean energy sector represent the fastest some of the fastest growing technologies in the country in terms of annual compound annual growth. We are growing very very quickly, um, not just in the U.S. but around the world. Solar, wind have consistently been the first or second fastest growing source of new generation capacity in this country for, for quite some years. So that's the good news. We're fast growing. Most of the incremental investment is going to, on the generation side, to either solar or wind or natural gas, right? I'm happy to be competing with the gas folks. We can do that anytime. So, um, so again, that's, that's the good news. But the bad news is that, is that those the oil and gas sector in particular, also coal and also nuclear, uh, still produce an overwhelming majority of the electricity in this country. And they have the power of incumbency in terms of the power that you know most of the revenues from the sale of electricity go ultimately to those um, those sources of energy. And we can't match them yet, and we need to. We need to because, you know, the revenues in the system, you know, the revenues associated with the energy system are ultimately what fund um, the opportunities for more effective political engagement. And we're not, uh, we don't hold a candle to 
the resources that the American Petroleum Institute or the American Natural Gas Association or the Nuclear Energy Institute, um, you know, bring to bear. And we need to find a way to do that. And, you know, we have very good representation in both of our major trade associations, both the American Clean Power Association, which, as you know, is, is multi-technology, a great move, I think, uh, an important one for the clean energy sector, and the Solar Energy Industries Association, which I had the honor to serve as, as chair and a longstanding board member, too, um, which continues to do a great job representing the solar sector specifically, solar and storage sector, actually. So those are great, but those organizations, if, if you look at the share of new generation, meaning new investment and new investment dollars that's going into the clean energy sector, we should be competing with the APIs and, and ANGAs and NEIs of the world, and we're not. So we need to figure out a way to step it up in there, in that space. Fully agree, fully agree. Okay, last question. When it comes to climate progress, are you an optimist or a pessimist and why? You know, I'm, I'm both. I would say ultimately, so I don't, it doesn't sound like I'm, I'm punting on your question. I'm a, I'm a very cautious optimist, um, but I fear, I fear, Mike, that's a strong word, that we're uh, in a race against time and that we're losing that race. So let me build on both of those statements. I think the good news, the reason I'm optimistic is that I think we have the technologies we need to completely drive the clean energy transition. We have the technologies we need. And again, not all of them are necessarily cost competitive today, Mike, but they all have the potential to, to get there in short order. You know, this is not pie in the sky. Um, with, all, with all due respect to my, uh, my uh, friends who are nuclear energy advocates, this is not nuclear fusion, which, We've been investing in forever on the grounds that it'll be, you know, that that commercially viable nuclear fusion reactors are, you know, 10 to 20 years away. And we've been saying that since the, probably since the 1970s. So this is not that. These are technologies. The technologies to fully drive the clean energy transition are are available today, and uh, affordable either today or, you know, figuratively speaking, tomorrow. So that's not the problem. The problem is essentially the inertia in the system. And from a political perspective, back to what I just said a minute ago, the power of incumbency. The oil and gas industry is still, I think, the biggest industry in the world. They're not uh, happy about the idea of having to relinquish their market share in the energy sector. And uh, But there's no way we're gonna address the challenge of overcoming the climate crisis if we, don't uh, win the battle for market share in the energy sector, and uh, but but their economic influence and political influence is creates huge inertia in the system and slows the pace at which we can really drive the transition. So um, I'll say this is. Tom, this has been awesome. This is every bit what I wanted here. Thank you for letting me stalk you for a year to do this. <laughs> I think it's better that we're doing it now than a year ago, Mike. I think so. <laughs> it, the Lord works in strange ways. So, Tom, thanks for your time and your wisdom. I wanted you on the show from its start, and I think listeners will now know why. We're going to break this into two episodes because I think that unless people have been at a certain level, have been in boardrooms with you for associations or work with you, 
they don't really know how much you know, and they're not, they don't have the benefit of proximity. And I want to see if we can provide them with that proximity through this conversation. So I'm just grateful you came on the show. And, and uh, Tom, thanks for what you've done. Thanks for what you're doing. And thanks for what you are going to do, because people like me owe people like you a big thanks. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate your giving me the opportunity to join you and your audience today. I really, I'm really grateful. Thank you. Great. This is Scaling Clean, a production of TigerCom, and I'm Mike Casey. Thanks for joining us. You can subscribe to our show free anywhere you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.